We have heard the blast of five trumpets tonight. We hear the sixth. Revelation chapter 9, we read starting in verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel, the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode by them. They wore breastplates of the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads. and By means of them they wound. Let's pray. Father, in this, the sixth trumpet of seven, we encounter a great, great judgment. Father, help us see you in this. There are many who say God cannot be cruel or mean. He can't kill people. Uh, that, that, that doesn't make him a very good God. But Father, this is your word. So help us find you even in the midst of the ravages of war and the great calamity that comes during the sixth trumpet. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the things that's most important about this book is that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is not the revelation of John. This is not the revelation of bad things to come. It is not the revelation of junk. It's not the revelation of anything else. It's, it's not the revelation even of judgment or wrath. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the thing that I want us to do very first, right off the bat, is find out what does this passage Show us about Christ. Because it's often hard when we're facing such catastrophe, when we're facing millions, billions of people dying. Right now the world's population is a little under 8 billion. A third of it is to be wiped out in this one. Now we assume if, if this happened today, there goes more than 2.5 billion people from this one trumpet. We don't know if... I've said before, we don't know if John is looking at the same types of things from different perspectives, if he's revisiting judgments that have already happened as he's going along, or whether there's a cyclical pattern to it, or whether it's sequential where this follows what has already happened. But mankind has already been devastated. If this is sequential, and I, I'm tend to incline, I'm, I'm tending toward that idea. If this is sequential, and if these things are happening one after the other after the other, each of the seals followed by each of the trumpets followed by each of the bowls and continuing on, if this is all one after the other after the other, just as John is seeing it and writing it down for us, there's not a whole lot of people left by the end of this. Where is God in all this? Where is God in all of the ravages of war? Where is God in the midst of such death? and destruction some some people like to say god has well for him to be god he needs to be loving and kind 
I was in Philadelphia. I do not recommend this. We were in inner city Philadelphia at night. We were living in an apartment in not the worst part of town, but not too far from it. And as we were walking to this apartment building, um, we were stopped by a man. He's got a cigarette in one hand and a beer in another, and he's definitely not on his first drink. His name was E. That's what he told us, E. E, as soon as he saw us, I can't repeat the exact phrase, but he basically said, what are you doing here? All these white college students in the middle of Philadelphia, late at night, we struck up a conversation with E. And one of his complaints about God, one of the things that he pointed to that's like, I can't trust a God because he doesn't follow his own rules. He said, in the Old Testament, God told people not to kill, and yet he kills. That was his objection. And I have a feeling, I don't know that that was the core of his objections. I don't think that's the thing that got him most. I think that was something that he had heard that he was repeating. But it's a it's an objection that a lot of people seem to have. If God is so loving and so kind, how could he break his own rules and kill people? How could he say to a group of Israelites, go kill all those folks and take over their cities? How could God allow something like that to happen? Or worse yet, be the one perpetrating it and still be good. It's an objection. It's a sincere objection in some cases. It's a, it's a good objection in the sense people really do wrestle with that. How could a good God do such calamity? I preface this with that because the character of God, you're not going to get His actions. But if you don't look at the actions of God, you won't get His character. If you put in your mind, okay, God is exactly this way and He's always going to be exactly this way, God says, really, is that the case? Let me show you who I really am. This trumpet, I think, gives us a great picture of God. Let's look at what happens, and then let's look at what those actions, what those events that transpire teach us about God. And by extension, about Jesus Christ. Verse 13, when the, then the sixth angel... Remember, we are in the middle of seven trumpets. The first four happen, bam, 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 bam. And then there's this creature that's like an eagle, an angel, something vulture kind of thing, flying overhead saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Because there's three more trumpets. And those three more trumpets are something completely different. They're on a whole nother level. And so by the fifth trumpet, the star falls from heaven. It's not a literal star. It's some sort of individual. Whoever you might think that is that it is, John doesn't tell us. John doesn't reveal that to us. I don't think he knows who it is. But he sees the star fall from heaven. And when it happens, he gets the key to a shaft, opens it up, and this plague of locusts like we've never seen before ravages the people of earth who are not marked with the seal of God. They don't hurt the grass. They don't hurt the trees. They only go after those who don't bear the mark of the living God. That's the first woe. This is the second woe. I'll also note, this woe doesn't end at the end of chapter 9. There's more to it. In fact, you don't get the second woe has passed until after we meet the two witnesses in chapter 11. So we're going to be on the sixth trumpet for a little bit, okay? This is not just a moment, it happens real quick kind of thing. 
This one is lasting a lot longer than the others have. With that in mind, the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. Remember, uh, in chapter 8, there is this altar before God where an angel is offering the incense with the praises of God's people, and it rises before the throne of God. And then he takes fire from the altar and throws it down on the earth. That's the beginning of the trumpets. Do you remember that? This same altar is sitting there, still in front of the throne of God, and John hears the voice almost like it's coming from the altar itself. And the voice says, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Are these good angels? Are these angels that are following God, that haven't turned away from Him, that haven't rebelled against Him? Or are these demons, are these angels who have turned against God and are now fighting against Him? We don't know. We don't know. It could be either or. By the way, God God can use either or. God can use people that are completely following Him, giving Him everything that they have, or He can use people that are completely opposed to Him. Just ask Pharaoh. God can, it doesn't matter to God. It's a lot easier if you're on his side doing what he wants. It's a lot better for you in the end, but God can, God can use folks either way. However, the four angels who have been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. God is exercising his judgment in these angels, and it's not just these four angels, because look what comes. John doesn't tell us exactly how this happens. But those four angels are released and suddenly it's not four angels. Look at the next. The number of mounted troops, this is verse 16, was twice 10,000 times 10,000. Now, if, if you're, if you're mathematically inclined, that's too, I did a little research. I, that's a lot. Let me show you how many that is. Do you know how many active duty personnel the United States has? a little over a million. China has about two million. Doesn't that make you feel good? If you include reserve, those numbers go up quite a bit. It's a little more than two million for the United States. It's, I think it's 2.7, something like that for China, 2.7 million. South Korea, man, they are loaded. Their, their reserve army is huge. They've got, I think, three million in reserves. And then there's India. India has a massive army. If you include all of the active and reserve members of militaries, North Korea has the largest. No, 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 no. Excuse me. You have to include paramilitary. I'm sorry. Including all three, active, reserve, and paramilitary, North Korea has more than 7 million. Of course, they're pretty much everybody's in the military. <laughs> if you're able-bodied, that's what communism will do. That's to say that in any country, that just marshaled all of its military force right now, no one country could put 10 million people together. Get this. I did the math. This is according to the International Institute for Strategic Studies. They do a compilation every year. In 2019's numbers, okay, they did a compilation of how many military personnel there are throughout the world. Active, reserve, paramilitary, all together, there are 63.7 million members of militaries around the world. And this is three times that. There's no way to picture this in your mind. If the entire world's militaries all fought, they'd be outnumbered three to one against this army. Let that sink in. 
Just grapple with that for just a minute. Let it, let it soak through just how massive this army is. John is looking up and all he sees are these throngs of people. People, people, people all over the place. This massive army. How do they maintain their ranks? How do they stay in their positions? How do they hold their lines? Not only that, how many supplies do they need? Think about the logistics of this. This is massive. And yet, to God, it's a drop in the bucket. To God, legions upon legions upon legions of angels at His disposal. To the God who is unlimited in resources, He can call as big of an army as He wants. Hey, He'll take dry bones and make an army. He says to Ezekiel. And He describes the horses and their riders. They have breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur these reds and blues and yellows yellowish green the heads of the horses were like lion's heads these aren't ordinary horses best way he can describe them are horses but heads like lions their tails are like serpents they're breathing fire smoke and sulfur these aren't these aren't um these aren't anything like he's ever seen. Some people have said maybe they're tanks, maybe they're weapons, modern military warfare. I, I don't think it matters. It's a devastating army and one-third of mankind is destroyed for it. What does this teach us about God? First of all, I'm impressed with the sheer force. The fact that God could take such a large army with such devastating animals and riders that he could destroy a third of mankind. It shows me that God isn't limited. God doesn't have a cap on his resources. God doesn't need an annual budget. God doesn't need to handle things wisely so that he'll have enough. God has plenty to spare. But it shows me something else about God too. I didn't say it before. I don't, I didn't want to tip my hand. But I think the biggest message in this is just how in control he is. Let me show you what I mean. These four angels that are bound. Look at verse 15. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. Say no surprise. God has taken upon the fabric of history and he has stitched in at this moment this exact event. Jesus, when he was on the earth, said, no man knows nor the hour. No man knows. No man knows when the Son of Man is coming again. No man knows that. Only the Father knows that. Not even the Son. I don't even know that. Only the Father knows that. But there's a specific moment in time that God has ordained for Jesus Christ to come again. Well, in just the same way. Think about Esther. Who knows? Mordecai tells her. Maybe you were made queen for such a time as this. Maybe God put you here in this place at this time to do this specific work. You see, God is the God who orchestrates history to His end. And so He's the one that's designed the score of history upon which the notes of all the various rebellions and all the various actions, all of the following Him, the riffs and the chords are all designed by God, put upon the page of history and built, designed, orchestrated specifically to His standard. He knows the time, the way, and the resources needed. 
And he puts them all in their proper places so that at the right time it will happen. No matter what his will is. And that's exactly what I see here. I see him orchestrating the events of history so that at this moment, at this very hour, at the moment of time, the exact time that he declares it's to be so, these angels are released, this army is set upon the world. Right at that moment. Not a second sooner. It's not that God has lost control and he's got to get it back. No, he's in complete control. Who cares if the angels are demons or angels? Who cares if they're against God or for God? He's using them to orchestrate His judgment that had been planned from the beginning. From the very beginning of time, God has laid all of this out. You say, well, what of, what of us? Our free will. If God has planned all this, then we're not really responsible for what we do, right? To that I would say, look at verses 20 and 21. If men were not responsible, if God simply did what he wanted to do and man had no, no responsibility in it. Why then does John make these comments? Verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. Not repent of what? Did not repent of the works of their hands, the sinful things that they had done, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or talk. You know how silly it is to worship something that ain't even as powerful as you are? Oh, but we do it all the time. You know how silly it is to worship something that you have to make and to claim it made you? Yet if we're not careful, we do that. You know how silly it is to worship even another created being and to completely miss the Creator? Yeah, we do that too, don't we? See, man is going to worship something. This is how we're built. It's, it's like my kids were watching the movie Aladdin the other day. A genie needs a master. Otherwise, they just go back into their lamp, right? A genie needs a master. In the same kind of way, we need something to worship. A minion needs an evil ruler to follow. In the same kind of way, we need something to worship. That's the way God built us. He created us to worship. And when we worship Him, that's exactly where we ought to be. But when we worship stuff we make, when we worship, what am I going to worship this pulpit? It's not worthy of worship. Oh, but what about the little statue? Cute little Buddha with the big belly. That's not worthy of worship either. Well, you don't worship the thing. You worship what it represents. Still, it represents something that ain't real. I think it's Jeremiah. He's talking about the false worship of Israelites in his day. And he says, they're worshiping, cannot see or hear or talk. He says, they're as worthless as the idols they're worshiping. And yet, even in the face of such devastation, even with the clear warning that God gives, it's hard to mistake this. This is judgment. And it's a, it's a judgment on one third, and it's a warning for the other two thirds, and the other two thirds don't heed. By the way, I want, I want you to notice something. I, I think Revelation is sequential, okay? If I'm correct on that, Antichrist hasn't shown up yet. This ain't a whole bunch of deceived people. This is all happening before he comes on the scene. If the Revelation, the book of Revelation unfolds the way that it's written, they aren't deceived. They're just men. This is the depth of human depravity. We will reject God at any cost. 
but for His work in our hearts. But for the Holy Spirit moving within us, we would utterly and totally reject God no matter what it cost us. Why? Because we like our idols. Because we like doing the stuff that we do. Verse 21, nor did they repent of their murders. With all these people dying, you think nobody else would want to kill. And yet here they are. They did not repent of their sorceries. The word here is actually where we get our word pharmacy from. I'm not saying that using medicine is wrong, but the way they used medicines was in the practice of divination. They would go into trances and things with with drugs and things like that. So um, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about that whole realm of, of activity in sorceries. They did not repent of their sexual immorality. Not specifics, not just adultery, not just one thing or another thing. They wouldn't repent of any general categories that cover a lot of sin. This isn't just one specific thing or another specific thing. This is all sexual immorality in this. They didn't repent of their thefts. They refused to repent. So here's here's what this teaches me about God. It teaches me that God is still in control, that He has the resources and the power, the omniscience and the sovereignty to do whatever He determines that He wants to do. And no matter what He does, men will not repent. The time for pleading has come and gone. The time for men to hear the gospel and repent has come and gone. The time for men to see judgment begin to fall and still turn back before it's too late has come and it's going fast. You know what this tells me? This tells me we, as humanity, are getting what we deserve. But God doesn't want to rush into that judgment. Time after time after time, He calls to repentance. And time after time after time, so many men refuse. That's why wide is the gate that leads to destruction. You don't build a wide gate unless you need a wide gate. There are so many going that way, they had to make the gates bigger. But straight is the way, and narrow the gate, leads to righteousness. And there's very few who find it. There's one other thing I want to say about the character of God in this. And that directly addresses partly what I just said and partly what I said at the beginning. God is righteous in His judgment. He doesn't have to keep giving chances. He doesn't have to keep appealing. He has every right to strike humanity down in one fell swoop and be done with it. So if you say, how can a good God bring such calamity? When you compare it to the badness of men, such calamity is less than what we deserve. And it's a good God who's holding back. Just as those angels were restrained until the proper time, God is holding back full judgment until the proper time. Father, may we not be like the men on the earth who at the end of this trumpet refuse to repent. May we repent of our sins. May we follow you. May those we know who have not trusted you turn to you before it's too late. Use us in that. Help us to be intentional in our discipleship. Help us to build the meaningful relationships that give us avenues for preaching the gospel and avenues for making disciples. And help us be ever vigilant in the task. This is your word. May we heed it. In Christ's name.